Welcome to season three of the Yoga Therapy Hour podcast. My name is Amy Wheeler and I'm your host. We are so happy to tell you all that's happening in the world of yoga therapy. And we love to find guests from all over the world so that we can share and learn and grow together. Some of the things that are happening in season three that we find so exciting is that not only are we continuing with the free gift that we are giving out every single week in season two, and you can see more about that in the show notes, but now we are adding a YouTube channel and you can see all of these podcasts on video. The YouTube channel is called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. Some people like to watch video maybe you want to use it for one of your trainings these videos on youtube will be there for you to use for free we would love your support we have opened up a patreon page that is going to help the podcast flourish and grow you can help us to expand and grow and create more content for you and we'd love for you to visit the patreon page which is called optimal state and yoga therapy hour podcast so let's go into our guest today and please nourish yourself take time for yourself and really relax into listening to the podcast welcome everyone we have a really great guest for you today named neil pearson and neil and his wife lisa they have an organization called pain care aware one of the things I really love about the interview, as some of you know, Neil is a scientist, he's a professor, he is definitely well-versed in the medical side of yoga therapy, but his partner in crime is his wife, Lisa, and she is a Swami. So they've got this perfect union between the East and the West in their organization. And I think that's what a lot of people who listen to this podcast are looking to do to really stay true to the ancient teachings while at the same time get integrated into modern medicine where we can really help people. Neil goes into great detail about a lot of things in this podcast, but one of the things that really stood out for me, and I think you're going to enjoy learning about is the importance of safety. And that comes from Stephen Porges and polyvagal theory. That if the client doesn't feel safe in the session with us as a yoga therapist or any other healthcare provider for that matter, the healing won't happen. That's a big part of the healing. So one of the things I would like you all to reflect on, and I know I reflect on, is my own state of self-regulation. If I come into a session reactive or highly caffeinated or haven't done my practice that particular day, I can tell a difference in my state of regulation. And then through this really interesting thing called neuroception, my client is going to feel that deep in their nervous system that they don't feel safe. And we can kind of extrapolate on this a day that we're feeling a little bit insecure a day that we maybe got some bad news. There's a lot of reasons we might come into a session and not feel our best. And of course, we all have bad days, but all the more reason for us to have proper daily routines where we get up and we do some movement and we drink our warm water with lemon. 
and we do our yoga and do our meditation and prepare our mind and our body and our senses for the day ahead so that when we come into these client sessions, we're actually feeling our best. Our nervous system shows up as stable and the nervous system of the client can really feel that and feel safe with us. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. I know I did. I look forward to hearing your comments about this interview. You can always give us feedback. We have a Facebook group called the Yoga Therapy Hour Facebook group. You can write things in there. You can go on any of the platforms and give us a review and tell us what you like so we can do more of that. Okay, have a great day. Here's Neil. I am so happy to have my friend and colleague, Neil Pearson, here today. Welcome, Neil. Thanks, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Neil, where are you? I always like to place people in the world since we have so many guests that are visiting globally. Where are you today? I live on Vancouver Island, and mm -hmm. I live in the unceded territory of the, the Nanus and Sna'a'as peoples. So it, it's a beautiful place, Vancouver Island. It's sort of rainforest-ish, but uh, like very, very green. We live within a block of the ocean, sort of on a peninsula. Yeah, it's... Hey, I want to visit. <laughs> all the goals. And I mean, right now there are so many fawns in our area. You have to drive really slowly on the roads here because, um, I mean, right around us, there's probably about eight or 10. They're usually in duos with their mothers walking around. Mm -hmm. And the moms are teaching them not to go in front of the cars. Anyway, it's a it's a pretty beautiful place. I'm, we're pretty blessed to be here. And you you moved recently, right? Within yes, we moved from here? the interior of British Columbia. So we moved from the, the Canada's hot spot, uh, the place where when people hear about fires in Canada, the Okanagan Valley. There's a place where they grow great grapes and great peaches and cherries and all this stuff. Mm. Um, and now we're now we're more in the land of salmon and orca and things. Nice. Well, I'm in Southern California on the land of the Serrano. And interestingly, there's only like one rainforest in Southern California and it's the two miles around my house. So that it's interesting that we're both in a rainforest. Mm -hmm. So Neil, there's so much to talk about. I don't know how we're going to do this in an hour, but you are the pain guy. And I, I just want to start with with asking you, how did you become interested in pain care? It's one of those things that a lot of people have an assumption that they're working on somebody in my life had a lot of pain and I had a lot of pain. And actually, it wasn't that at all. It was um, when I first started working as a physiotherapist, the stories that people were telling me about their pain, the person's pain, their experience uh, of pain was so different from what I learned about pain in school. It just really got me intrigued. It's like because the, the the experiences that people were telling me made no sense from what I learned in school. And apparently, according to some some of my psychology colleagues, I did something weird. Is is I I sort of went the path of thinking that what I learned in school must have been wrong, and that the patients were right, which apparently isn't what often we do after you know medical kind of training. Is we often sort of go into this. Well, I didn't learn in school, so that's got to be wrong. Or, or that person is an outlier. And I started to realize that, that all these people couldn't be outliers. And so this is the 1980s. There were no courses on pain. There was one book on pain. It was called The Textbook of Pain. It's actually a, 
and Melzack and Wall, and it was more philosophy than it was, you know, physiology or biology. But they were really close, and some of their ideas about the pain and how biopsychosocial, spiritual it is, they were sort of already there. And so it really was just getting interested in just staying involved in the area. And then in 1997, I had the opportunity to start to do a lot more work around sort of medical pain management and, and worked for quite a number of years in, in uh, hospital pain management programs or community-based interdisciplinary pain management programs. And um, I guess, you know, the thing that really drove me after I started to work with this was that, that some people actually really did well. And that there was this general belief that when you have chronic pain, there's really nothing we can do except show you how to cope with it or just to live with it. And But some patients were telling me that their pain was actually improving and their function was improving. And that got me intrigued as to like, what were they doing? Because what I was thinking is, what were they doing that the other people hadn't figured out how to do? Mm-hmm. And now we actually see that a lot of things that patients are telling us were actually sort of the science is catching up. And if I can give you one example. So this patient said to me, actually, this is a few years ago, this, this patient said this to me, is, you know, when my hip is sore, I just get in the bathtub and that feels better. But when it's really sore, that doesn't work. What I need to do is I need to get the temperature just right, put in Epsom salts, I light a candle and gaze at it, I put on aromatherapy, and I listen to Enya, and the pain gets better, she says, right? Okay. And, I just love that. I love, love, love that. <laughs> and so in, in the moment I realized, oh my gosh, she just told me that she has uses different mechanisms of pain relief. And then when the pain's really bad, she layers the different mechanisms together. And, and I think why it sort of hit me so hard at that point was that I realized patients have been telling me this for decades mm. and I didn't hear it properly. And, and you don't hear this in the pain world. But there are people starting to do research now showing that there are within us different mechanisms of pain relief. But there's not just one. And we tend to focus on the, the new opioid receptors for the opioid system that we have, the endogenous opioid system. But there are multiple other mechanisms within us that can actually modulate pain. And so like the patient's experience sort of told us this, and then science is now catching up. Yeah, kind of a multimodal, like you said, layering effect where maybe sound is having some effect on maybe the nervous system and the texture of the water and the the visualization or the meditation on the candle. Like, do you think when you add all those components together, do you get something bigger than the the parts separately? I think so. And I think I, I think that because patients tell us this, is you know, without thinking about it. And on the other side, what we see is people struggle when they're looking for the the thing, like the one thing that will make the pain better. People really struggle with that. And that, that more so when individuals start to figure out that they can put things together, mm. right? I can listen to music and hold my partner's hand, or I can, I can do this, this, this meditation, but I need to do it with a hot pack on, right? Or, you know, to, because there are many, many ways that we can increase the evidence of safety and, and decrease the evidence of danger. And that is another really great thing that we're sort of getting to around the pain area. And part of the reason why I love yoga around it so much is that uh, we could look at everything we do in yoga as uh, when a person has ongoing pain as helping to decrease the evidence of danger or help to increase the evidence of safety. 
So these things we know from science now, and a lot of the work Gorges and others have done, uh, become so important around, around pain care. Uh, whereas before it was, you know, if you can't fix the tissue, well, there's nothing you can actually do about the pain itself. So tell us about safety. Like, what is the research saying around safety and pain care? And I, I do want to note that you're not saying pain management. You're saying yeah. pain care. <clears throat> right. And, and very intentionally. The word management for a lot of people suggests that you can't change pain itself. It's like this, there's this implicit message that pain is immutable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I should be clear on that. So if for the people who are working with people in pain and the, the people in pain who are listening to this, there really are sort of three separate outcomes when we're working with somebody who has ongoing persisting pain or a chronic pain condition. There's an outcome where the person says, hey, you know, the pain's mostly gone and I can pretty much do what I could do before. And that's not the biggest group of people, but that does happen in some people. And then there are other people who will say, and this is the bigger group of people who say, you know what, the pain's not all gone. It's better than it was, but it's not all gone. And there's still some things that I can't do, but I've got a lot more function back. Mm. Right. So there's this, this the realization that even though we know that pain is changeable in the individual, sometimes we can't figure out how to make the pain go away. Sometimes that's just the way it is. And the other group is the group that really, really fascinates me. The group that says, you know what, my pain hasn't changed at all, but you helped me get my life back. And so what this group is telling us is that it, this is a valid outcome. And it gets all messy because neuroscience and, and the, 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 the science of our, you know, our physiology says that pain is changeable. Yeah. But we need to recognize that pain is so wildly complex. And sometimes you can't change it, and we don't know why. Sometimes the person is doing everything that works for so many individuals. And we, we don't know why it doesn't change, but we still can help the person to move with more ease and live with more ease in the face of the ongoing pain. And one of the struggles that some people in pain have is they go to, to a pain management center. And a lot of times when they go there, the person says, the, the clinician say, you're not here for the pain. You're here and we're going to help you with your function. Which is really unfortunate because I don't think we want to close that door on people. We want to keep that door open and say that you know it's possible that we will not be able to make your pain go away. It's important to understand that, but we know that we can help you with quality of life. And one of the things that science is very clear on is expectations are so powerful. And if you tell somebody to expect that their pain won't change, then it's likely that it won't change because, unfortunately, expectation is that powerful. And if I could just sort of jump over to the research idea on this, there was a study a couple of years ago where they looked at all these different interdisciplinary pain management center treatment outcomes. And they're looking at when people go into these programs, what changes more, their function or their pain? And they asked the clinicians working in these programs, what do you think? And the clinicians were basically hands down, pain doesn't change anywhere near as much as function. But if you look at the research studies, that's not the way it goes is that pain actually changes more than function. Which you can see the complexity of this, right? Here you have these people working in the area who actually don't expect the pain to change that much. And unfortunately, projecting their bias potentially onto the people they're working with. 
which I think is one of the reasons why I'm um, not only am I on the pain guy, I'm a research geek, because one of the things that we sort of miss is that when we work clinically and we only look at what we, our knowledge is only based on clinical observation, we can become biased in that world. And sometimes when we see the research, the research can say, hey, you're missing something over there, right? Or vice versa, right? Maybe yes. someone focuses only on the research and misses out on all this juicy stuff from clinical care. Yeah. And I think that part of the word of care is that this is about care. This is about compassion. Mm -hmm. And this is about realizing that we're not treating pain, right? We are actually providing care to a person who has persisting pain. And, yeah. and that th those languages become so important around us. It's like, you know, sometimes people say, well, this, this is a yoga class for low back pain, which, you know, I always want to change the language. Around. <laughs> are, there, are there any people attached to that low back pain? Yeah, people who have low back pain. And I know we, we you know, we do this for marketing and such, but I think the, the, the language around this becomes important. And that, that care word, I'm happy to say, is really, really catching on. Mm. That, you know, a lot more people in the last decade are talking about pain care not about pain management. So I'm just going to bring up for a minute for those who are watching this on YouTube, many of you know that we've expanded past the audio version of the podcast, and now we have a YouTube channel called Optimal State. And I'm just bringing up Neil's website because here you are, Neil, a hardcore research dude and a physical therapist and a yoga therapist. And your website basically says pain care aware, compassionate hearts of service. And it has a deity on the front. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that. What, I mean, that's a really unique thing. I've not seen anyone else in pain care going this direction in terms of how they present themselves. Well, the picture is of Kuan Yin and mm -hmm. Kuan Yin is uh, someone who I only discovered about, uh, about 12 years ago, the first time I was teaching in Taiwan, I saw this massive Kuan Yin. It was so enraptured. She was, was just so beautiful. And actually stumbled on a, a temple, a Kuan Yin temple over there at one point. But Kuan Yin is, is, about, is about service and providing mercy to people who are suffering. To uh, Lisa, my partner, who's um, Swami Swarupananda, she's a householder Swami of Kriya lineage. You know, this, this idea of bringing together science and yoga to help to decrease the, you know, the, really the pain and suffering of, of, of people of the world is that's what we're about. That's really, you know, and we really do have parts of service that we you know, want to do our best to be able to pass on this information as best we can to others so that others can pass it on to others. Um, mm. Anyway. But, you know, I think that if you work in pain care long enough, at some point, the, there's this shift that, that is going to happen. You know, you, our evolution of understanding, our individual evolution of understanding pain and people in pain and pain care comes along. And at some point, we start to realize that what we're actually talking about is human consciousness here. You know, to, to talk about pain, you need to talk about consciousness. And you need to talk about, you know, the, the, the complexity of this. Yoga has been looking at pain and suffering, like sort of what it's about, 
All right. (laughs) Yeah. That's, you know, reducing human suffering. Yeah. And the thing about pain, you know, when we, even the medical view of pain, a, a medical person can see that pain disconnects you from pretty much everything. Right? Pain is like the, 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 the disconnector. And so it's part of the reason why I think yoga is a great thing to bring into the world of pain care because it's so much about reconnecting, reconnecting to your breath, reconnecting to your body, reconnecting to your thoughts, your emotions, your, your community, to your world, your God, if that's part of what's going on for you. All those things are so important and yoga provides a path for each. And so I think that's sort of how we've actually had the blessing to be able to bring these two things together. You know, me, that Lisa and I sort of, we've got this little thing on our website that we joke about is the, the Swami and the professor. Yeah. Right. And, and we really actually love having these conversations that sometimes we do webinars on and someone just asks us a question about pain and yoga and Lisa will answer as the Swami and I'll answer as the, the sort of science physiotherapy guy. And it's it's really great to have those different perspectives and learn. You know, I, I regretted this morning as I was preparing that I didn't have both of you on here, but I just decided I'll just have her separately and we'll have her come another time. Can we circle back to sure. this idea? And I think it's connected to exactly what you're talking about. The research on the importance of safety right. contributing to sure. maybe function and intensity of pain. Right. So I think we'd have to sort of look in two different places in terms of the research. The, a lot of the research that was has been done on this has been done by Porges and the, the people who are with him. And a lot of his research has been done with people with autism and PTSD. And so best I understand it's about six or seven years since people like Marlisa Sullivan and others who are in the pain world have started to work with Stephen Porges as well. And, and to, to realize that what, what he's found in terms of safety and danger relate to pain as well. So if I can sort of get to where his research is really looked at. Can I interrupt for just a minute? Cause I, I feel like we need a little clarity when you say safety or danger, mm-hmm. do you mean within your own system or do you mean within relationship to your care provider or both? Oh, I, I think just want to define that before we go on. Yeah, that's great. So evidence of safety, I think, or, or yeah, evidence of safety is, is in, in terms of everything. Good. Right. So it, it, it would be, you know, do you feel safe in your body? Do you feel safe to, to be able to feel your body, to feel your breath? Do you feel safe in this room? Do you feel safe in the world? Do you feel safe in your life? It will be in really, really in everything. And that if I understand the, the polyvagal theory properly, we had this recognition of that the autonomic nervous system moves into this fight or flight platforms when there is more evidence of danger and less evidence of safety. So, mm-hmm. and that's going to be individual. Uh, an individual's perception. It's not necessarily the outside environment as it is. It's your perception of, am I safe in this Absolutely environment? Both, right? Yeah. Because we have a physiology, this, this organism in which we live has a physiology that can respond automatically. Mm. And so we have all these protection mechanisms, right? And the protection mechanisms of us can function without our conscious involvement. 
right? That's the autonomic part of it. The fact that it's called autonomic it was you know, not called automatic because the idea of autonomic is that you have some influence over it as well. Although it runs in the background all the time, you have some influence. So as you said, the, the sense of safety could be this actually very conscious, cognitive, you know, conscious, psycho-emotional sense of, am I safe? But there's this other part of safety is how are your protection mechanisms behaving? And mm -hmm. there are protection mechanisms learn, right? You know, just like we learn, the automatic stuff of us can learn. And, and sometimes the automatic stuff of us has learned to be very, very protective. And so if it becomes very protective, it's as if things are being, the, the, the systems themselves are now misinterpreting external things and internal things as being potentially something dangerous, something that you need to guard yourself against. That could range from, I shouldn't be pushing that box across the floor to my husband just made a comment that really cut me deeply. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's almost like there's this, in terms of what makes us feel safe and what makes us feel dangerous, as you said, it's very individualized. One of the sort of hypotheses that I have mm. is that there are certain things that are more powerful in terms of the evidence of safety to a lot of people. And it seems like the ability to breathe calmly is a really, really powerful evidence of safety for a lot of people. Mm. I know there are some, some individuals who that doesn't even feel safe. But the same idea is the, the ability to release muscle tension in your body. I think this is another thing that is massive evidence of safety, that if you can't calm your breath, this is evidence of danger. If you can't calm muscle tension, this is evidence of danger. And so the flip side is, is when you have this ability to actually to breathe in a calmer way or to regulate your breath even a bit or to regulate your body tension. I think these two things are really, really powerful as sort of the foundation of where we want to start when people have ongoing pain is to see how can we help with those two things because they're just so powerful. If you think of every muscle in your body, if you are guarding with all the muscles of your body, the massive amount of input that's going into your systems that's clearly saying it's not safe. It's dangerous. So, so that bottom up, the, you know, the 80% of information that's going from your body up to your brain is like, mm -hmm. we're not safe. We're not breathing. There's a lot of tension down here. Yeah. And all of that in terms of the, the, when you're not breathing well, like when your diaphragm's not moving well, this feeds so much information in through, obviously everyone knows through the vagus nerve, but, but the vagus nerve goes far more than just your autonomic nervous system. It's going into the interoceptive part of your brain, which is going to make it up into consciousness if it's big enough. I mean, so there's all this stuff. And I think this is part of the reason why when we start working with people with ongoing pain, one of the foundational things that we want people to do is to start to learn to regulate your breath, but also to be aware of our breath. Because often we find is that when, because it's this autonomic stuff, is that sometimes we're not even noticing that our breath is so shallow or our breath is so tight or so ragged. And so some of the people that we work with, what we need to do is help them to become more aware and help them to regulate. 
Mm. The same with muscle tension. You, you imagine if someone might be sitting in front of you and their shoulders are up like this, right? And I might, as a physiotherapist or a yoga therapist, say to the person, can, can you feel how tight your, your shoulder muscles are? And some people are like, oh, absolutely, yes, I, I know. Like, can you help me with that? And other people are like, what do you mean? <laughs> right? And it can go so far as that the next thing I might do is say, is it okay if I like touch those muscles? And the person said, yes. I say, so I'd like sort of grip them a bit and say, can you feel how tight this muscle is when I'm doing this? And some people will say, yes, I can. And some people will say, not, that feels normal to me. And so it's really fascinating. Even sometimes you get the person to stand in front of a mirror and I'll stand beside them and I'll say like, you know, your shoulders are here, you know, right? This is, this is where your shoulders would be if the muscles were relaxed. And some people say it looks normal to me. Yeah. And so you can see that th these are sort of different amounts or layers of being disconnected from self. Sometimes you can't feel it. Sometimes you can't even see it in yourself. And so sometimes what we need to do is sort of go through this, you know, building this increase in awareness of how tight the body is at the same time as teaching people time to be able to actually release some tension in the muscles of the body. That is so different than let's hook you up to a vagal nerve stimulator, which <laughs> I'm not saying that that isn't a possible way to deal mm -hmm. with it, but it's mm -hmm. a complete paradigm shift. Like you said, of helping them have the awareness and the self-reflection that wow, my shoulders have been lifted like this for 22 years now. <laughs> and I didn't even know that wasn't a natural way to be. Yeah. And, and there are these other things that we can do sort of to people or get people to do where the person experiences the letting go or the calm mm -hmm. breath, which sometimes allows them to figure out the path to actually get there on their own. Right? That's right. another way right. to go. I, I was thinking about the first time I was in a yoga class, and I heard the yoga teacher, this, this guy, I'd never been to his class before, and he, he, he said something about softening your tongue. I think we were in like warrior two or three or something. It was some posture that was pretty was strenuous after a while. And I remember him saying something about softening your tongue. And I think I did an eye roll that sort of broke the whole, you know, the walls and the ceiling right out, right? I'm more yoga speak. But then, of course, he said it, so I did it. And had this, oh my gosh, that's amazing, right? This, this big relaxation. And, you know, this is another thing that, you know, Porges and other people's work has told us is that there are some muscles of your body that are particularly important. So not only is releasing muscle tension important for increasing evidence of safety to your physiology, but there are some muscles in us that are far more important than others mm. that when we can let go of the tension and that, that provides, seems to provide a lot more evidence. And it can, seems can to you list a few of those. I think people well, would be, yeah, it, it would, well, the, the question I, I pose to people would be, so what are the first muscles that, that engage or grip when you get anxious or scared? And most people would say, well, it's, it, you know, the jaw, the upper traps, maybe the psoas, the glutes, say, well, science is giving us an idea that it's possible that the first ones are actually smaller ones than that. The muscles that protect your orifices mm -hmm. may be the ones that you really want to focus on first. So the muscles around your eyes, around your mouth, around your throat, muscles around the vagina, the muscles around the anus, 
all the muscles that protect your orifices and even the muscles around your, your ears. There are little muscles in your ears. And, and again, Porges' work has shown us this, is that there's a connection between the muscles that deal with the little bones inside your ears and how you hear the muscles around the throat and the vocal cords, that these things influence what's happening in the, in the vagal networks, the vagal platforms. And so it, it seems that yoga sort of had this idea of there are certain muscles you want to let go. And now we've got science backing it up. But, you know, so I think that it seems for a lot of people that there's this general decreasing muscle tension that will increase the evidence of safety. But specifically for you, you might say, hey, you know, the place I hold tension in my body is my hands. Some people like, you know, so you'd, we'd want to sort of find that out is, is, you know, can we figure out where we tend to hold tension? For most of us, it would be, you know, jaw, tongue, both cords, neck, eyes, you know, whole face structure, and then down to the pelvis, right? And that's interesting because as Stephen Poor just says, that's everything that has to do with social engagement, making mm-hmm. eye contact, hearing what someone else is saying to you or your perception of it being able to express and articulate and find connection, which to me, that all points to this idea of compassionate care that you and Lisa have come to, that your relationship with your care provider and your social engagement with your care provider using all of these small muscles around the orifices is actually the beginning of the healing, the, the discussions, the talk, the understanding, the feeling of I'm safe with this person actually is having a healing effect, literally. Oh yeah. And, and you know, the, this area is growing in in physiotherapy profession that this was called soft skills stuff, Mm. but the area of research around therapeutic alliance and social engagements and and these sorts of things are, are really starting to grow as important. Yeah. There's, it's just, it just is, is, one of the things that um, I'm Matt Taylor, Taylor and I, you know, talked about things a lot. And um, actually just this morning, he was, there was an article he was making a comment on. And one of the things had to do with, well, maybe really is just the interaction. Like maybe, you know, if we were going to compare yoga to stretching to pain education, maybe what we need to equalize across these things is what is the, the actual interaction? And, and are you building the same therapeutic alliance in each place? And if you are building the same therapeutic alliance and the outcomes are all the same, maybe that's the point is that maybe you could actually look at yoga and physical therapy and or pain education or any of these other things as actually the vehicle with which we create a connection to a person that allows the person to then go through their process. And we don't normally think about it that way. But I mean, even even all the pain education stuff that Lorna Mosley and David Butler have done, it's been fantastic to help physios in their work. It's possible that the most important part there is they provided a vehicle for the physiotherapist to be able to connect with their patient in a way and for a way for the patient to connect or the person in pain to connect with what was going on in a new way. I completely agree. In our our training programs, I tell people all the time, yoga therapy is our chosen vehicle, but let's not mistake the vehicle for what we're actually doing, which is connecting. And we could be in the garden club and do that together, right? Like 
not that the the content of yoga or yoga therapy isn't also helpful as you've just described with the body tension and the breath and all of that. But in the end, maybe this connection, it's the safety of that connection is as or more important than all the techniques. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, I would say I'm much more of a physiotherapist than I am a, a yoga person. You know, I, I don't think that my yoga knowledge is, is that deep. But yoga has paths, right? There's yana, there's bhakti, there's, there's harma yoga, there's you know, raja yoga. And, and we are very focused, or we tend to be in, in the Western world, very focused on raja yoga. But to me, I look at that and say, well, the yogis realize there's not one path. Yeah. Right? right? Is that, you know, you can do it through contemplative practice. You can do it through devotion. You can do it through love. To me, and when Lisa and I talk about this a lot, it, it often comes around to that word. Right, it's about love. Yeah. It's just a matter of how you get there. Yeah, I mean, the Bhagavad Gita has eighteen different paths, right? Eighteen chapters and eighteen paths of yoga. So, mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Well, Neil, I want to switch directions a tiny bit because I feel it's such an important thing for our listeners to hear about, and that is the work that you've been doing with the Veterans Affairs in Canada, and that the Veterans Affairs of Canada are now covering the cost for veterans to receive yoga therapy as a part of their interdisciplinary pain management mm-hmm. with over 120 clinics. So tell us, what, how, how did this come to be and, and oh my gosh. what's happening? So I got asked to do a presentation almost two years ago on the science behind yoga for adults with chronic pain and specifically to look at veterans. Since then, just all this stuff has happened. But I did this presentation, and the research is pretty clear that this, you know, that that we don't really need more research to show that it's effective. We need to do some research on some other things, but but we, you know, it it works and it tends to work really quite well with veterans once they come in. And what I really like about like it is that a lot of the veterans start yoga as skeptics. Right. So you can if someone's skeptical about what you want to do with them and they still get better, that's a pretty good indication that it's working pretty well. <laughs> but also that, that one of the other things with veterans that we found is that, that a lot of times veterans are going through care and they're engaged with the care and they're making improvements, but they get stuck. And that when you add in yoga, that this sort of unstucks them, right? Mm-hmm. The person has this really quite big movement forward. So, Veteran Affairs Canada is making a big change in the way that they offer care to veterans as of this November. So these changes are happening as of this November. And because of the, the presentations that we've been making to them and showing them about the research, that yoga has never been part of what was paid for in Canada for a veteran who had chronic pain. Mm-hmm. So now what will actually happen if a veteran is referred into a interdisciplinary pain care program, Right, and this will be those where those 120 clinics come in. 120 clinics across Canada will get training, and I'm, I'm sort of blessed to be part of that process of training the people who will be doing that. And so, when they come into those programs, the treatment team, which includes the veteran, could decide that they would use yoga as part of the path. They may decide, no, we're going to do more of the physical therapy, the you know the, the exercise route, not the yoga route. That decision can be made by the group with the veteran. 
So if that decision was made, now Veteran Affairs Canada will pay for it as part. So the yoga therapy would actually be um, more of a one-on-one -on -one base. If it's a clinic that has enough people that they could do a small class, that that may happen as well. But it will be very much the yoga therapy will pro be provided as part of this team plan. So it's not go to a yoga class, it's to do yoga therapy in this plan. And so the, the model is going to be to start with a little bit of the medical-ish model, you know, the yogaopathy model, which is okay, but not where we want it to go in the end. But the idea is that the person, you know, they'll be assessing what are the biopsychosocial spiritual issues here and could we apply yoga to help with some of those issues, which is a place to start. Yeah. Um, and um, so we're, we're pretty pretty happy about this. It's a big job that's going to have to happen because you can imagine well, we've got to do the training in 120 clinics to get the healthcare professionals there to even know what is yoga therapy, what's the research behind it, why would you do it, and then potentially you know, they'll be looking for regulated health professionals who also are yoga therapists or yoga teachers to do mm -hmm. this. Or And if that's not there, then they'll be looking for yoga therapists. Although we will be, I don't think we're going to be able to find yoga therapists for all these places. So we will be also looking for yoga teachers with lots of experience and we'll be asking them, well, Veteran Affairs and this group that's doing all this work has sort of come back and said, all right, so, you know, they've asked me like, well, what training do these people need? And I'm like, okay, they need to be trauma-informed. Mm -hmm. And we've created a, a module on the uniqueness of Canadian veterans. So you need to know like mm -hmm. veterans are a, are not civilians, you can't treat them like civilians. So we've got a, a module that we've created on that. And we're also gonna have the people go through the Pain Care Aware uh, Foundations course that Lisa and I have put together, which is a 30 hours or so online, self-paced, very interactive program that people can take that really, it's very experiential. So we're giving people the knowledge, yeah, so you can get it through there. We're giving people the knowledge of pain and pain science, but we're also providing the embodied experiences of yoga that will bring people to well, that really embodied understanding. So actually, if you scroll back up to the top, Amy, if the top of the website, where it says start here, if someone was looking for the foundations course, press start here, because that would be the, the start of this. And you can, if you're there, you can see a little video about what the foundations course is. So within, within the website, we've actually created that there's the foundations course, and then you can do a certificate in teaching groups or a certificate in individual applications. We were you know, developing some more advanced courses and, and other things. But from pinkareware.com, if you click start here, you go to the foundations course. And if you wanted to know more, there's another thing that says programs, and you can see the other programs that we offer as well. And there's our cute little graphic of the Swami and the professor. <laughs> what I love about this, Neil, from a marketing business perspective is that you are working with veterans, which I think most people would say this is a very specific population. And when you go to the website, you should see army soldiers, <laughs> yoga, warrior one or whatever. And you're making a stand for compassionate care mm -hmm. as it applies to this particular population, which is veterans, but you're still holding your ground in the yoga. You're not giving that up and then pretending that you're not doing yoga so that you can get in the door. Yeah. 
Exactly. There's no way that Lisa and I will ever move away from from our love of this process that is so much about love. It's so much about compassion. And I think just there's a, I think there's a time and a place to have those other images. And mm-hmm. you know, if you go yeah. to the Warriors at Ease project or the their yoga project, amazing groups that we're gonna try to because they're mostly US based, we want to try to get our Canadian people involved with that. And and you know, that stuff becomes important. And I know that there will be some veterans who come to our website and don't stay more than a few seconds because that Kuan Yin picture, right? There will be times I think hopefully people will come and they'll they'll sort of be ready to to see that or to understand. But it is a, it's an important thing that that I think around veterans is an important thing for anyone who's working with veterans to understand is that if you're not a veteran, if you haven't been in the military, you know you're a civilian and. A lot of times there's there's this sense of of distrust of civilians. Civilians don't understand what we're, we're doing. So what, what the last thing we would want to do on our website is you know, profess to understand what it is to be a veteran. We can only understand that as best as a, as, as a civilian can. Right? Yeah. I know a little bit about veterans because my dad was a veteran. And so I you know, lived with him for a long time and understood a whole lot. And I also got to say that I really like working with veterans. It's not something that I've done a lot. And I, I sort of feel like I've stumbled into this, this place sort of at the, you know, towards the end of my career where I get to do something that, that I have, feel like it's such an honor to be mm-hmm. able to, to expand these ideas out to this group that really, really needs this, the group that, that's, been, that, that's been missed, in, in, especially in the Canadian system. I mean, in, within the U.S. system, at least the veteran affairs clinics, the vast majority of them have yoga already. Yeah. Whereas in, in Canada, it's not been part of it at all. But even really good interdisciplinary care across Canada, we haven't had that. We've had it in little pockets. Mm. Um, so that this is really such a, such. it really is a blessing and an honor to be able to, to, to work with this group. A group that's tough. Right, a group that that is so great at holding you to task and asking tough questions, right? And like, really, is that really how you know that, that sort of stuff? I think is fantastic. I, I like that. Do you think that the initial talk that you gave, and I'm sure you had a lot of really great research in there, and then of course you and Marlisa Sullivan and Shelley Prosco have this wonderful book called Yoga and Science in Pain Care: Treating the Person in Pain. Do you think that you kind of coming in with that kind of more scientific approach and then blossoming out into both the science behind compassionate care, but also just bringing compassionate care as you and Lisa do, do you think it was important to enter through the science door to get to the compassion? Absolutely. I think that's why they listen to me. Yeah. Because I've got a whole bunch of sort of street cred. I got a lot of letters after my name and I've won a whole bunch of awards for working in the pain world. So, so I, I started from a place where people would, would listen. And I think, I guess the other part of it is, is that, you know, I've, I've lived most of my life in the medical world and I know the language and I know the culture and I'm able to use a language that works in that culture. So I, th- I know that it's like, a physiotherapist going and starting to talk to doctors about all our physiotherapy stuff, 
right? You know, the eyes gloss over the person just doesn't know this language. It's the same with, with yoga is that we need to most, uh, or at least in I started joking about de-yogifying some of the, uh, the language. So we're still talking yoga. Anyone who, who knows yoga knows you're talking about yoga, but you've taken out the Sanskrits as you're explaining it to somebody as a way for a person to understand. Yeah, you know, this is a such a big topic around cultural appropriation and making sure we don't take the culture out of the yoga. And one of my teachers, Desikachar, he basically told us, meet the person where they are with the language they can understand. You'll get to the depth of it. You'll get there. But you can't speak Italian to a Frenchman <laughs> right off the bat. You have to meet them before. Or you can take them from the shallow end of the pool into the depths of yoga. Mm -hmm. And I think we're seeing that starting to happen is that the medical world, at least in North America, is starting to understand that pain really needs to be approached from a biopsychosocial spiritual perspective. And that you can see this in that some of the research studies that were about yoga before were really talking about stretching and strengthening. But there's a shift in that now that people are talking about, you know, that yoga is providing this biopsychosocial spiritual approach and that you hear that language within it rather than yoga is about just another way to stretch and strengthen, right? Or to fix a disc or something like that. And I really love the work you and Shelly and Marlisa did around this book. And, you know, a big part of the things that Marlisa talks about are helping people to find meaning and purpose in life and that that actually reduces inflammation, like that we can see physiological measurable effects when you help someone find their meaning and purpose. I think that's what you're talking about, right? Yeah. I, yeah. I think, well, we can start to get down to the sort of what's happening in the body and, you know, we're, we're seeing those measurable changes and we're also, you know, starting to get the understanding is that, even things like getting people to move gently is another way to change the chemistry of the body. So we can, we can change what's happening in the physiology of the body from the top down, mm. and we can change it from the bottom up. We can also change it by changing the sensitivity or the sort of perspective of the sensory apparatus. I mean, it's an interesting idea that most people haven't thought of is that the body is actually a sensory organ. Yeah. Right? And so the state of the body changes how the sensory organ works. And so when you are deciding, you know, how safe you feel, if we go back to the safety, it's going to be influenced by the state of your general physiology. Because the state of your general physiology changes the sensory apparatus, the way it functions. And that's Sankhya philosophy, right? That that goes all the way back to the five elements and, you know, depending on our mind and our body, how much of each element we have, we are going to perceive reality differently. Exactly. Right. And, and so, you know, these things that we've learned through embodied experience, right? So, you know, Sankhya philosophy comes from people having learned it from experiencing it. And now science is actually, you know, catching up to a lot of those things. Although one interesting thing I find that sometimes we hear, and it seems to, it might be coming from yoga, it might be coming from Buddhism, this idea is that, you know, when you have pain, I don't know if you've heard of the two dart metaphor or the two arrow metaphor. So the pain is the first dart or first arrow. And then the second arrow is how you respond to it. 
And a lot of times we hear this metaphor being used as it's the second arrow you want to work on. Mm. Unfortunately, when we sort of go that way, or if you go to mindfulness meditation because you have pain and you're told, well, you know, you're not supposed to try to change the pain. But the implicit message of that, of you're not supposed to try to change it, or of we're supposed to work on the second dart, is that pain is immutable. The pain itself is immutable. And I think this is a time when I'm guessing it's been a misinterpretation of what the philosophy said in the past. Yeah. But we hear these things, and I think this to me has become very important in, in sort of the work we do of recognizing that one of the other basic tenets of yoga and Buddhism is impermanence. Everything's changing. So why is it that if you have knee osteoarthritis, that we decide we can't change that because you've got osteoarthritis in your knee? Everything's changing to start with. Right? It's already changing. What we just need to do is figure out how we can actually influence the change. But we don't have that mindset. We're still a little bit stuck in this biomedical that anatomy rules. By the way, for anyone listening, I'm not saying that if you have NeoA, you can make the pain go away. I'm just saying that it's not immutable. It's not that we have no influence over it or their physiology or practices have no influence over it. That isn't held up by human experience or research. An example of that is that a few years ago, I tore my meniscus in water aerobics and it hurt like hell for nine months. Like I couldn't walk well, I couldn't go up and down stairs. And through yoga and yoga therapy, I still have a torn meniscus, but I don't feel pain. Now, I don't know how much of that physical structure changed. I don't know if I strengthened my glutes to get realignment. Like there's many, many things that could have happened, but it definitely did have something to do with my breathing and my perception. You know, it's all of it, right? Yeah. Well, and I think one of the key pieces of it is that our physiology has the capacity to go, that's old news. I don't need to tell you about it this much anymore. Yeah. But we often don't think that. We think that if the tissue of our body is abnormal, the system is going to still yell about it. Mm-hmm. But the, really, the, our physiology is plastic. You know, we actually have bioplasticity, right? We're so resilient, but we're still, even within yoga, we're still sort of stuck in the biomedical view at some times, which is really unfortunate. And that just to swing back to, it's another piece of pain care where is to try to change our language and our approach to a language of resiliency, mm. a language of fearlessness, not recklessness, but fearlessness, and try to move away from language of fragility and language that inadvertently creates fear. Because, you know, a person with a meniscus tour potentially might have been told, you should never do kneeling again. Yeah. Right? And the reality is, if you never do kneeling again, you'll never do kneeling again. Right. <laughs> and I kneel every day. <laughs> well, we're, we're coming close to our time ending together this morning, Neil. I want to pull up your website one more time just to let people know how they can find you. Because I'm already, my wheels are turning that, oh, I know three people that need to work with Neil and Lisa. So your website is www.paincareaware.com. Mm-hmm. And you're on Vancouver Island, but I assume you you do work online as everyone does. What's the one or two things you'd like to tell us that you and Lisa have coming up or mm-hmm. that you think is relevant to our listeners? 
Sure. We actually have a virtual retreat. So for coming up in, in, uh, in the fall, in which it would be like, we'll have a morning practice and we have stuff to work on during the day and then a evening practice and, and sort of satsang for a week, all focused around pain and themes around that. That's for people in pain or practitioners? Or practitioners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, I think it's one of the things that we realize is that it takes a long time to shift our perspectives around pain. There's so many misconceptions about pain and about people in pain and pain care. They're so embedded. We've heard them so many times and it can take a long time to, to experience them or, or, or yeah, to actually get an embodied experience that's inconsistent with those embedded views. And that sometimes you need to repeat that embodied experience a bunch of times before you really get that deep learning that we need to get mm. to. So anyway, the virtual retreat is, is, is good for either group practitioners or people in pain. We also have, we're excited to be actually be able to be offering one of our courses in the Bahamas at the Shivananda Retreat in February, mm. if anybody wants to plan that far ahead. And I'll be doing one of the certificate level courses in November for people who take pain care wear foundations. And then they're interested in how do I use this in a one-to-one setting? So you could find that uh, within the program. So I think if you scroll down just a little bit more there, there's the full certificate programs. You see we have the teaching groups where they're teaching individuals. And it's the teaching individual ones that you would see on the, on the calendar that I'm teaching in November. Great. Beautiful website, by the way. <laughs> you know, I teach a, a business of yoga course. And I have to tell you, when I saw your, your website, it is so good for so many reasons. So <laughs> thank you for giving me an example to share with my students and saying, this is how it's done. <laughs> Well, thank you, Neil. Give our love to Lisa and let her know that we'll be asking her to come on in the next year or so. And just really grateful that you spent this time with us today. It was very meaningful, I think. Thanks a lot, Amy. It's, it's, as you can see, I always like sharing these ideas. Yeah. Well, you're really, really talented at it, both in head and heart. So I think the the professor is probably impacting the Swami and the Swami is impacting the professor <laughs> A loop. Thank you. Thank you, Neil, for speaking with us today. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And, you know, at the very end, I had spoken about what a beautiful website I think that Neil and Lisa have created. And it's not an easy thing to do to really get your message across so that people know they've kind of landed in the right place and they feel at home and they think, yes, this is what I've been looking for. It looks so simple, but it really isn't to ask our optimal state business students how hard it is to really narrow down that message and get the correct pictures and, you know, offerings on there. It is not easy. And I, I really just want to applaud Neil and Lisa for, for getting this done Because I think if we as yoga therapists are going to get our message out there, we have to start being professionals, professionals in ethics, professionals in business, professionals in actual sessions and what we do, we all have to take a step up. And I think a lot of us are dragging our feet. It's very hard for us to get out of the yoga realm because we we're doing this because we want to be yoga people, right? It's very hard for us to then step up to the next level and say, 
yoga therapy especially is allied healthcare. We are healthcare providers. We are not yoga teachers. We are not gym instructors. We are not wellness people. We are in healthcare. And so we have to start acting like it. One of the things that we're offering at Optimal State Yoga Therapy School is not just the business course, but we also have a 10-hour course with Zipporah Gerson Miller, who talks about what it means to be an allied healthcare professional. And that's a big deal. We're going to do that five-hour class in October of 2022 and a five-hour class in November of 2022. And what does it mean to step up our game and have those professional ethics and have cultural humility and really take our game to the next level, like I see with Lisa and with Neil. And I think it's really cool to see our field kind of expanding and blossoming into these next levels of being a a bonafide professional. I just renewed my CIAYT status this week. And I think it cost $130, which is a total bargain for three years in a professional organization. Let me tell you, most are way more expensive than that. And there's an ethics quiz that I needed to take. I needed to provide my continuing education. And it was just really fun to see our field taking it to the next level, because that's how we're going to keep people safe. We're going to keep ourselves safe. You know, we're self-regulated here, meaning we are taking responsibility for holding ourselves and our colleagues accountable in healthcare, because if we don't do it, other people are going to do it for us, but also just watching the field kind of grow and expand and become this allied health profession that we are. So I don't know how many of you are starting to recertify if you are like me and you jumped in really early to get certified as a CIYT, it might be your time, but I just want to encourage you to take that next step and be part of this emerging allied healthcare field. It's a really exciting time. All right, everybody have a great day. Please don't forget to sign up for our newsletter mailing list, where we give you a free gift every single week. It's usually something that the guest has been talking about, like a book chapter or an article or an infographic. Check out the show notes for that. Thank you for listening today. Don't forget, we have a new YouTube channel called Optimal State with Amy Wheeler. We also have a new Patreon page where you can support us to bring you the most excellent content and that is Optimal State and the Yoga Therapy Hour Patreon page. Also, you could write us a review on most major platforms that host podcasts. Give us five stars if you appreciate the show and tell us what you love so that we can do more of that. Finally, we support several nonprofit organizations through this podcast. See the show notes to understand how you can help. If you'd like to be a guest or a sponsor for this program, contact us at the email welcome at theoptimalstate.com. Welcome at theoptimalstate.com. 
And finally, a special thank you to our team here at Optimal State. We are truly a global family. George Mantuan, one of our executive producers. Adam Satchel, senior media producer and sound engineer from the Philippines. Krishna Panchal, a producer from Canada. Modupe Abdullahi, who does the show notes and is an editor for us from Nigeria. And Peter Morley, who wrote and produced the music for this show, who lives in Australia. Find more about Peter's work at www.zenmusic.biz. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.